Okay. Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the session, which is entitled Debating the Rembrandt Rule. Uh, today we're going to consider and discuss the proper use of collections, the balance between our preservation and education missions, and the role in the nature of standards of care and use. Uh, as a panel, we're going to uh, spend some time making some initial uh, remarks and, um, and articulate some of the context and the issues and the perspectives in the field. And then we're going to open it up to your thoughts and questions. I, uh, we all deal with this question at some level. And so I think we would all benefit from, uh, from hearing everyone's point of view. And we would welcome a vigorous discussion on these, on these topics. Uh, by way of introduction, uh, I'm David Jansen. I am the Vice President for Collections and Interpretation at the Detroit Historical Society. Uh, the bulk of my 18-year career, though, has been spent with historic house museums. Um, the two most recent are Bruce Moore Property, the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and uh, the Edsel and Eller Ford House in uh, Gross Point Shores, Michigan. Ron Potvin is the Assistant Director and Curator at the uh, John Nicholas Brown Center for Public Humanities and Cultural Heritage, uh, an institution which I, I want him to talk to you about a little bit, at Brown University. Uh, Ron uh, has been working with historic sites for about 20 years. He, uh, he's teaching a course at Brown on historic house museums, uh, which is good to hear. And uh, most recently finished an article for Museum News, I'm sorry, for uh, History News, uh, called uh, House or Home, Rethinking the House Museum Paradigm. Kendra Dillard is Senior Curator at the Sacramento History and Railroad Sector. Uh, she was also for 11 years the Curator, curator of Historic Sites uh, for the uh, Minnesota Historical Society. She is uh, currently the Chair of the AASLH Historic House Committee as well. Let me uh, begin by exploring a little bit of the context of this discussion before I turn it over to, to our panelists. For most of our institutions, the historic resources uh, in our care are the heart of our existence. They are central to our identities as collecting institutions. This material culture, this tangible evidence of our past is, is our singular distinction and our advantage over recreational attractions, over other types of educational institutions, and other competition for the attention and for the disposable income of our audiences. Uh, our collections have power, and we know that. We take pride and we spend a great deal of effort wrapping context and wrapping stories uh, around our material culture to make it relevant and uh, to try to enhance the understanding of it. But we also know that many of these items have a latent power to inspire without our interference. Uh, they connect us to the people who made, used, and cared for the objects. We're talking about a, a weapon that was used in, a, in an epic battle. We're talking about a coat that a beloved leader wore. We're talking about a, a letter that is emblazoned with the ideas and, and probably stained with the perspiration of, of, a, of a great thinker that, at a pivotal moment. We, we take the preservation and conservation of these objects very seriously. They are rare fragments of evidence, and um, we should do so. ASLH, AAM, the National Park Service, AIC, other institutions like that all have some sort of standard of care, some sort of document, formal or informal, uh, that address matters of collections, care, responsibility, and ethics in some, some way. There are others who use material culture 
for their purposes as well. They just don't call it material culture. Antique dealers, bed and breakfast institutions, private collectors. We distinguish ourselves from uh, them as museum professionals in part by our standards of stewardship. And the way I was thinking about this on the plane coming in was um, how the dogs and Lady and the Tramp just aspired to get that license that validated them. And I think in some ways we, we think about these little fragments, these little objects as hoping for the day that that assistant collections care person is going to put the, uh, put the nail polish on in, in anticipation for the accession number that, that validates their existence as well. We know that sometimes these things come into our collections from the trunk and from a, uh, a, a grocery bag from a donor, but once they cross the door, it's white gloves and, and uh, acid-free boxes. We also stand apart, however, uh, in our education mission from these other collecting institutions. Our, our uh, missions usually reflect that duality, the balance between the responsibility to preserve the objects and the aspiration to teach with them. We talk about relevance. We talk about providing engaging experiences. We take pride in innovative ways to inspire our communities and to share our passion for the history and for the object. We look at immersive environments and technology and exhibitry and, and audio tours to try to attract attention and stimulate imagination. And in our efforts to develop programs that find audiences, sometimes we strain the common definitions of collections care in practice, if not in policy. Historic sites in particular have been dealing with this ambiguous balance for decades. Uh, partly this is due to the sheer number of uh, historic house museums that are out there, by some estimates 1.2 per county in the United States. It's also a function of the nature of most of these institutions that have very small staffs, very small budgets, uh, and uh, are struggling for visitation and attention. Historic sites, both out of necessity and demand and, and inspiration, uh, have been producing programs that sell access to the collections uh, in various degrees. Uh, space at an historic dinner table, uh, use of uh, an antique instead of a reproduction, uh, use of actual tools to do the work rather than, uh, rather than reproduced tools. Uh, which brings us to the point of the title of the session, uh, Jim Vaughn is the uh, Vice President of Stewardship at Historic Sites at the National Trust for Historic Preservation. And Jim's article in 2008 uh, entitled Rethinking the Rembrandt Rule appeared in the March and April issue of AAM's uh, Museum Magazine. Jim's article argued uh, in part, and I have to summarize this very carefully because I know he's listening, um, that treating every object as if it were a Rembrandt is an unachievable and perhaps unattractive goal that in the interest of sustainability, he argued, we must seek other models. Not every object is precious. Collections are the means and not the end. Uh, he called for a, a differentiation of collections to optimize expenditures of scarce resources and costly conservation. Uh, a response in the next issue of Museum, uh, made notably by Marie Malero, added or, or counted that no such rule really exists, that each site must make individual decisions based on their own understandings of the issues. Uh, clearly, however, there's a positive correlation in our minds between um, uniform care, high standards of collections care, and professionalism. Uh, our history museum staffs look often to art museums uh, for, for the best ways to treat objects. Uh, grant applications demand proof of our understanding of and adherence to 
commonly accepted practices of care. Adding pressure to this discussion is the economic landscape that we're all navigating right now. Uh, the cost of collections care is high and the earned revenue is low. And uh, the question that's before us today is, instead of working for our collections, is the time that the collections worked for us a little bit harder. Uh, with that, I'm going to turn the uh, mic over first to Ron and then to Kendra, and then we'll uh, open the floor. Thank you, David. Uh, and thank you for putting this session together. Um, I was really happy to be involved in this. Uh, Historic House Museums and Sites are really one of my passions and part of being passionate, I think, is being angry sometimes. And sometimes historic sites do make me angry because I see a lot of untapped potential. And that's part of what we're going to talk about today. As, um, as David mentioned, I'm the assistant director and curator at the John Nicholas Brown Center at Brown University. We're primarily an academic center. It's sort of Brown's uh, version of museum studies, only a little bit more broadly written to include other humanities-based disciplines, including dance and theater. Uh, but we do teach museum standards and practices as part of the program. And I did teach a course on historic house museums um, this past spring, um, which dealt with some of these issues. Um, so I've been working in, in house museums really since 1989. My first paying job, I guess, um, was as an intern at a small historic house museum. And um, part of my training included the sacrosanct nature of the objects in the house, um, about how I should protect them and keep the public away from the objects rather than connect them with the objects in some ways. And it's really something that I'm not sure if it bothered me at the time, but um, as the years passed and as I began to work for uh, the John Nicholas Brown Center, I started to rethink this a bit, partly because um, the John Nicholas Brown Center has a historic house museum component or a period room component, uh, but we're very open about the use of the collections. That's part of the mandate of the center um, dictated by the donors that we continue to use the house and its objects um, the way they did as a family home-like setting. So there's only two chairs in, in the house that we don't allow people to sit in, and that's primarily because they'd probably fall right through the seats. Um, other than that, um, the objects are for use and for study and for examination by students, by faculty, and sometimes by the public. In his article, uh, Jim argues that the strict adherence to standards and practices borrowed from the broader museum community undermines creativity and sustainability at historic house museums. Um, he calls this the tyranny of collections, and I thought that was a great phrase. He suggests that new standards of stewardship should be modeled to reflect the distinct nature of historic sites. I couldn't agree more. In an article that I wrote recently for History News, I raised the possibility that we should use the term historic home museum rather than historic house museum. I wrote in that article that, I'm quoting myself here, which is a sign of vanity, house museums are at their worst when they overlook the essence of these places as homes and emphasize the physical attributes of the site, its aesthetics and its collections, the thingness of the place through rigid standards for historical preservation and collections care carried out at the expense of the site's educational and inspirational potential. When I raised this idea during the class I taught at Brown, the students actually had a more radical idea. 
They proposed that the word museum was actually the problem. They wondered if house museums should actually be called museums at all, which led to a really interesting debate about what we should call them. But there, there are some good reasons to, con to consider this question. Historic houses are not environments that can be easily controlled. Security is difficult, and maintaining strict environmental standards is nearly impossible in most sites. Historic houses were not designed to serve as galleries or museums. They were designed as and lived in as homes. The museum function was imposed on these places and, and is not always an easy fit. Unlike gallery spaces that are adaptable to many different exhibits and programs, historic house museum settings are really inflexible and in most cases predetermined by the people who lived in the house and then the people who later restored the house. I don't actually think we should discount house, historic houses as museums. I think they are museums. But they do present unique needs that impact the use of objects. Historic house museums offer opportunities as well that aren't in, available in other types of museums. They allow for a display of objects in a semi-authentic setting and in a manner in which the objects may actually have been used, which is not something that you can do in an exhibit case. A cell can be displayed before a fireplace, a bed in a bedroom with a chamber pot underneath, um, a comfortable chair in a comfortable room, a formal chair in a formal room. Um, so the context of the house is very important in making this a unique situation. But I really wonder if we're cheating our visitors by simply showing and describing objects. Are there, are there ways we can facilitate a closer connection to the past by allowing visitors, for instance, to compare the feeling of sitting in a comfortable chair from the 18th century um, versus sitting in a, a formal chair from the 18th century? Is there something we can teach visitors about how people lived in the 18th century by allowing them to use objects in this manner? Can we create closer connections with people from the past? And that is really what I think historic house museums are about, creating connections with people who lived in the past in the very places in which they lived and with some of the things that they used. Um, and can this simple act of using an object in an authentic way facilitate a more close connection with the people from the past? And I think historic houses, more than any other type of museum, offer the, offer the opportunity to connect immediately with the past and its people, but somehow we, we want to stymie this um, impulse by erecting physical and standards-based barriers um, to fully experiencing the uniqueness of the historic house museum setting. And as James points out, we fail as stewards of these sites if the public isn't as passionate about their survival as we are. Part of our responsibility is to stir passion in our visitors. In a letter to the editor that, um, that was referenced, um, the James article, uh, Marie Malero voiced the opinion, I'm paraphrasing, that there really is no such thing as the Rembrandt rule. Um, she argued what actually exists is a combination of collections, policies, procedures, and legal and ethical standards that if we apply them properly, will guide any type of museum to the proper use of its collections. What Marie uh, was, was arguing in, es in essence is that there is no one-size-fits-all Rembrandt rule style of approach and that standards are already malleable depending on the nature of the institution, the nature of the objects, and even the nature of the staff and their own beliefs. And I can only respond to this based upon my own experience, having worked in or with many historic sites and having visited lots and lots more. And I completely agree that no two sites do things the same way. Um, some places use rope barriers, some places use half walls, some places use no barriers at all. Some places use their guides primarily as the means of security. 
Some places do a good job, some places do a bad job. I've worked with curators, registrars, conservators, and educators, and they all interpret their responsibilities and approach to objects in slightly different ways. And in fact, most museums of all kinds already treat objects differently. They already have somewhat of a graduated standard. Some objects are protected more carefully. Some receive a higher level of security than others. Ranked higher in conservation priority lists, stored in better environmental conditions than others. This would suggest, in fact, that there is really no such thing as a Rembrandt rule. On the other, on the other side, um, going way back to my, my past again, one of my other early paying jobs was as a fine arts handler at a small campus art museum. And during my orientation, the curator took me down to the collection storage room, and they had these very nice um, storage uh, racks for paintings. And he was pulling paintings out and showing them to me, and he encouraged me to do the same thing. And I pulled one out and I commented on it. I don't remember who the artist was, but it was someone notable. And I wasn't aware of who it was at the time. And he said, that's, oh, that's a Monet or whatever. It wasn't a Rembrandt. Um, and I got sort of nervous and, and immediately kind of slid the thing back in. And I almost barked the frame against the side of the, the rack in the process. And he was very patient. He said, relax. What we do around here is treat everything the same way, whether it's a Monet or a Rembrandt or a child's drawing, as long as it's part of the collection, as long as it has been accessioned into the collection. We give it the highest standard of care. The highest standard of care, that, I think, is the essence of the Rembrandt rule, whether we call it that or not. The highest standard of care, that's the ethic, the standard, the philosophy that I think we've all learned at some point in our museum careers. We treat everything with the highest standard of care possible, I'll qualify. We've all learned somewhere along the line the museum version of the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. This is the one-size-fits-all approach that impedes the ability of house museums to creatively engage visitors with their collections. First, do no harm. Second, provide an enriching learning experience. The question becomes if we balance or even reverse these priorities, will we cause harm to the collections? Will we impede our ability to preserve them for the use and enjoyment of future generations? In some cases, possibly most, the answer is yes. Is that a sacrifice? Yes. But a sacrifice also implies that there's something to be gained. What we stand to gain is remaking house museums into active, vital, exciting places of engaging educational experiences. We should be concerned about the future of the objects, but we should also be concerned about the future of house museums. And we should be concerned about the future of the visitors after they leave the house museum. Is it more important to protect the collections from the visitors, or is it more important to use the collections in a way that helps to create a spark, an idea, a passion that they carry into their daily lives and share with their family and friends? What are the collections for, if not that? Now, I'm not proposing that every visitor be allowed to touch, smell, or sit upon every object in every house museum. That would violate the trust placed upon us by donors and the public as stewards of these collections. However, museums that apply a don't touch anything standard, I think are also in violation of their responsibilities in some ways. I think it's taking the easy way out to apply a uniform standard, don't touch anything. It doesn't require any creative decision-making. It's only obedience to a single uniform standard. In fact, some objects are more durable than others. Some objects are more replaceable than others. 
Some objects are more important than others, and there is such a thing as an acceptable risk. If there is an area in which I might dissent with James, it's with a suggestion that historic house museums might adopt graduated standards of care, that we categorize objects in different levels depending on their value. As I've pointed out, graduated standards really already exist. And I think if we were to institutionalize this in some way um, in house museums, that would be more confusing, complicated, and I think unavoidably subjective um, than we would want. Instead, I propose a new standard, if it can even be called that. Instead of don't touch anything, the new guideline should be don't touch everything. Historic houses should invite visitors to touch, hold, sit upon, or even smell certain objects. Which objects? That depends. Um, we all have different collections that have different needs, and each site has a different story to tell. Sites need to figure that out, and the energies and collective wisdom of curators, conservators, educators, preservationists, and funding agencies should be directed towards guiding historic sites and making decisions about responsible and flexible use of collections. Objects are powerful. It's our job to make them powerful. Project that to the public, not diminish it in any way at all. So I'll leave you with a question that I asked earlier. What are collections for? Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm Kendra Dillard. Um, I'm currently working for California State Parks in the Capital District, uh, which includes the main museum that I work in now, which is the California State Railroad Museum and Old Sacramento. But I've also done a lot of work in the entire district, including the Leland Stanford Mansion, the old Governor's Mansion State Historic Park, uh, Sutter's Fort, the State Indian Museum, the State Capitol Museum. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the collections at Sutter's Fort, but first I have to refute something that Ron said. Um, my question, I guess, for him is, how do people know if they come into a historic house which objects that we've uh, decided people can touch and which objects they can't touch or which to sit in or um, I think it becomes really confusing for the visitor and I have a good good example I just recently read about in in history news an old issue uh, at Living History Farms in Des Moines Iowa they instituted a new program that was really successful which was to have all the visitors help with us with chores whatever was happening that particular day they would join in and carry buckets and use a hoe or whatever it was they were doing which sounds just wonderful and it was very successful the problem they had though was as the visitors came into the historic buildings they started doing the same thing touching everything in the houses and touching everything in the barn and um, 
they said it was a, a real problem because they they didn't know they did they weren't successful at at telling people why they could touch some things and why they could touch other things and a lot of these people I guess were quite young so that's understandable and they're the ones who touch things the worst so we'll talk more about that later <laughs> Well, I originally um, had prepared a little bit of information on a PowerPoint, and then I found out we weren't having a PowerPoint. So uh, I apologize for that, but I have some photos I'm going to be passing around, and you can handle them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with gloves on. I don't, <laughs> yeah. Um, in preparing for another session on Saturday for the Historic House Museums Committee, I've been doing a lot of reading about um, making historic house museums sustainable. And our committee uh, wrote a um, technical leaflet a uh, year and a half ago, I guess, about the characteristics of historic house sustainability. A lot of the reading I've been talking, uh, read, uh, a lot of the reading I've been doing, talks about how historic house museums, in order to stay st sustainable, must start engaging their vic victims. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> wow. Engaging their visitors, uh, being more relevant, uh, rivet the visitor's attention, engage their imagination, put things in context, go beyond the velvet ropes, be evocative, and give people even a spiritual experience at your historic house museum. Uh, and I can't argue with that. I, I think those are wonderful goals. My question, I guess, is um, does conservation then take precedence over context? Can we, can we get to those goals? Can we make things really evocative and keep them safe at the same time? Does the experience of seeing a piece of the true cross in its original and intended environment make one's numinous experience even more so? I don't know if you've read about numinous objects. Um, I do have a bibliography, by the way, and some of the uh, works I'm citing are on there, or actually all of them. So if you want the bibliography, I'd be happy to email it to you. Just leave me your card or name and uh, email address uh, after the talk today. Um, numinous objects are just those things that, like Lincoln's hat, the things that you can just take a look at and know and, and have a, a visceral experience. Uh, your body reacts to the the importance and the significance and the symbolism of this object. Um, and what I want to talk today about and pass around photos of is just such 
an artifact that we have at Sutter's Fort State Historic Site in Sacramento. Would you remove the Rembrandt painting from the artist's actual historic studio because it could not be sufficiently climate controlled? Yeah, maybe. Or are important artifacts better off in a controlled environmental conditions in a museum? Would they be experienced differently in one context of, or the other? And the answer is, of course, most likely. And then another question is, how long is perpetuity anyway? <laughs> um, The pictures of the doll that I'm going to sh pass around are of Patty Reed's doll. Patty Reed was one of the children who, who were with the Donner Party, who were coming to Northern California from Springfield, Illinois in 1846. Um, she was eight years old at the time, and she was one of the less than half of the original 86 87 people who survived. The rest didn't make it. And the story goes that this doll um, was something that she took with her even though her family had to stash most of their possessions in Utah on the salt flats because they realized that they were running behind schedule and if they didn't get over the mountains, the Sierra Mountains, um, before the snow came that they were in trouble and so they lightened their load and they planned to go back later and pick up their things well Patty apparently had this little four-inch doll that she stuck in her pocket sure that's the 1846 photograph of the doll when it came into the Sutter's Fort collection and just so you get an idea, that one has a, a ruler in it, but it's only four inches high, just a tiny thing. Um, the story goes that um, Patty put this little four-inch doll in her pocket, unbeknownst to anyone, and it became a source of great solace to her through the entire ordeal, and then was presented to uh, the Pioneer Museum, which they used to call the Sutter's Fort Collection, uh, at Sutter's Fort in Sacramento on the 100th anniversary of the Donner Party uh, in, um, well, actually it was <laughs> 101, but anyway, close. Uh, it came into the collection in 1847. Uh, and she had instructed her daughter to make sure that happened on the 100th anniversary. It's remained there on exhibit ever since, and it's still there today. So the next photo I'd like to pass around is eight, um, let's see, get them in the right order. A 1960 photograph and you can notice that in the the first photograph I'm passing around she has a little sash it's a costume that Patty Reed herself 
uh, sewed, put together because the doll didn't have any clothes when she first took it. Well, after being on exhibit for just 13 or 14 years, by the second photograph, you can see that the sash, which had been dark in the black and white photograph, had turned into a sort of checkerboard fabric. And uh, in fact, today it's very light pink, but we suspect that it was red in the beginning and that the red dyes were so fugitive it didn't take many years on exhibit for them to just disappear. Should it have been placed in a proper museum environment instead? Um, the educator might answer no, but the conservator would say definitely. And I, 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 I'm supposed to be on the side of <laughs> the conservator, but I'd say I'm not so sure, and uh, I'll tell you why. This is a beloved and iconic artifact for literally millions of California school children who make the pilgrimage to Sutter's Fort in fourth grade as they study California history. And this is the one artifact and the one part that everybody remembers. It's, it's, it's ubiquitous throughout California populations. If you went to school there, you know who Patty Reed's doll. You know Patty Reed and her doll. If, if we had placed that in a, in a museum in an environment that wasn't connected to the very spot where Patty Reed came after she was rescued from the Sierras, after she went through that traumatic experience, um, John Sutter offered to take in the rest of the party and offered them refuge there. So Patty came there with her doll, and that's why it's been on display there. So children are told that they're standing in the almost the exact spot where Patty Reed was 160 years ago, and this is her doll, and it's still here. Um, they're also told that can you imagine what Patty felt like after going through what she did with the Donner Party and survived and here she is she's finally able to relax she can she knows that she's safe what would that have felt like and and this doll was part of what kept her going the entire time I don't think in a museum environment that it would have produced the same types of, of experience for California school children. It just wouldn't. Um, but by the time the next picture comes around, <laughs> this is 1960, and you can see that the sash that's around her waist is partially disappeared by this point. And that makes me very sad. It makes me very sad that we didn't take care of it better. 
that it's falling apart, but it did its it did what it was supposed to do. It it resonated with visitors. The trade-off is that we could have removed her from this harsh environment with no climate control, incredibly dusty, natural sunlight coming through the windows, uh, and 60 years of continual display, and denied the California school children and other visitors one of the most extensive and evocative shared memories ever produced at this historic site. Today, we can, should, and will do both. We can treat Patty Reed's doll like it is the Rembrandt that it is. It's makeshift dress with its uneven stitches made by a 10-year-old's hand, excuse me, eight-year-old's hand 160 years ago. We can place it in an environment that will preserve it as best we can, but keep it there at Sutter's Fort. We have the ability to make climate-controlled, microclimate um, display units, display cases with UV protection uh, to protect it from um, highlight levels coming in through the window. We can do all that. But we could also do that if we put it in a storage facility and kept it in the dark all the time. So which one should we do? We can continue to let the children and grandchildren of those millions of now grown up school kids make the pilgrimage to see Patty Reed's doll. And we will. But sh should we pass it around to all the school children and let them handle it and see what it felt like to have that in your pocket? Well, of course not, because uh, it would be disintegrated in a matter of months, I imagine. Do people actually mind when they come to a historic site that, that they would see things in a case? Do they mind to see the Constitution covered in glass? Or do they expect to go into Thomas Jefferson's study to look at his books on the shelf? It's not so much getting to see an artifact without the plexiglass in between, or sit at William Randolph Hearst's immense dining room table that will resonate with your audience. It's the context with conservation issues addressed that will resonate with your audience. And then the third ingredient is the genius of a great interpreter who can bring these stories to life. It's the combination of all three things, the interpretation, the object, and the context. If that happens, it ignites the spark that makes this synergistic transcendental experience, transcendent experience. Um, it's the artifact plus the context brought to life by the story that indelibly etches our eight-year-old's minds. And so I will pass around the last photo, which is 
was taken in 2010. not much better uh, but we have plans for making it right and having it conserved and then placing it in the right environmental control so it can stay at Sutter's Fort for as long as perpetuity is thank you Thank you both. In listening to them talk, I think there, it, it seems to me that there's, there's two separate issues. There's the, the theoretical cost and benefit, uh, and then there's also the practicalities. I think Ken raised a, an excellent question about how do visitors know how to differentiate? Would, are we going to teach a, uh, a generation of museum goers that there's really no difference uh, between what they can touch, what they can't touch? Uh, do you want to, she kind of aimed that at you, Ronnie? Um, yeah, um, first of all, I, I wasn't arguing that, again, people should touch everything. I don't think people should touch the doll. Um, that will easily disintegrate. Um, I do think we need to broaden the variety of objects that people are allowed to touch. As far as you know, the example that you provided um, as being a, a, a problem issue with that, that was a case where children were taken from a please touch environment to a don't touch environment, and that is far too much to ask of children. So in a house museum setting, I think there are ways to set up um, interpretation using guides, um, using labels to identify which objects can be touched and handled. The guide can simply hand things. The guides can demonstrate and then allow people to do that, uh, do the touching. Um, so I'm not arguing that we simply get rid of the guides and throw open the doors and let people touch everything, there is still a need for facilitation and mediation between the public and the object. It just needs to be relaxed. Let me, this will be tricky because we're recording this, so I'll have to either come to you in a Phil Donahue kind of moment or uh, you'll have to speak very, very loudly. But. I'd like to hear from you all too, your experiences with this dilemma, your, your thoughts on this. Has anything here uh, evoked a new perspective or, um, uh, well first of all, how many of you would consider yourselves educators and how many would consider yourselves collections managers? Educators. Collections managers? All right. How many of you sort of cringe at the thought of uh, using things, using objects? Depends on what it is. Okay. Who decides that? Who decides what's accessible and what's not? Right, so the committee, the museum committee decides Okay. Yes.
invited as regular tourists to sit in any chair that had a yellow cushion on it. And it was an important part of the experience because he had arranged the windows in the room so that the views were visible when you were seated, not when you were standing. So in the case of allowing people to sit uh, on selected furniture to get the experience that the architect had intended. Uh, that's story number one, a good experience. Story number two is that I, I was responsible for bringing uh, Philip Johnson's house, last house, one morning. And um, I probably shouldn't admit this, but uh, we had a staff uh, planning group for this. Was, this was uh, Philip died, left us the house, and it was in the estate for some time, uh, so that the stuff was, was not accession yet. So we're sitting in the glass house, around his glass table, using it as a work table, um, which we were perfectly comfortable with because nothing in the room had yet been accepted. Even though we knew that the minute that it was accepted, we'd be allowed to sit there. And what we were debating was, uh, about halfway through the tour, there's, there's 14 structures on this property, and it was a 90-minute tour we were planning, people need a place to sit. So the logical place was the underground painting gallery, which, for which he had designed, series of stools that were chrome uh, legs and leather cushions. Pretty simple, round and round seats. So the first proposal from the staff was that we have them reproduced and we put these in storage. Now we don't have any storage there, but it was, uh, they, were, they were willing to have that cost, cost of reproduction and the cost of storage. And I, I pushed and then they decided that, well, well, actually the first proposal was we should put them in storage and get folding of aluminum chairs. And I thought, do you know what Philip Johnson would think? Uh, he custom designed this for these, this space. Um, in the end, what we decided was this was a this these items would be accession, but uh, they would be accession for use. So visitors when they came uh, and got to this point could sit and relax what they needed. We thought the worst that could happen is that every once in a while we'll have to replace the leather cushions. But Philip had already done that once. These, these chairs are already like 30, 30 years old. So when I wrote this article, what I was thinking about was not so much even the tour experience as it is, think of all the things that we don't allow ourselves to do in these houses because we're not willing to make decisions piece by piece in what we can use, what we can't use. And I'll give you one more example for us to make because we were approached by a blue jeans company at the Farnsworth house who offered us $50,000 to have Brad Pitt come for the day and model blue jeans sitting around in the furniture of that house, all of which is, most of which is reproduction anyhow, but, uh, but we would have made that decision one way or the other because our, our point was using that house in that way for one day was not a, was not a threat to its collection. And it, and uh, he had said, for $100,000, could I have a dinner at the, at the glass house or in the farm? Well, we would have given that a serious thought. Because I think we, we feel we should weigh the potential damage versus the potential return. And, and when you think about all the things that you automatically don't do in historic houses, because there's this kind of blanket, oh, that would violate you know, our collections policy. I just, I just was trying to make the case. I think we need to lighten up, look at this more on a case-by-case -case basis. If we generate a lot more money, we'll be better, we'll be better stewards of the property in the long run. So, 
So are you saying that history's for sale? Are you saying that you have to be wealthy in order to come in and sit on the chair, but if you're not, you can't? Because that's what the message sounds like to me. If I had $100,000, could I come sit on it too? I mean, it, that's, it's another way of looking at it. We have the same issue. We have uh, Hearst Castle as part of California State Parks. And the director there decided to um, participate in an auction for a night, not in the main castle, but in one of the guest rooms on the site and raised some tremendous amount of money. But there was also a lot of talk, even among the staff, that, well, yeah, it must be nice. I, I worked there for 40 years, and I never got to spend the night there. So it, it's something to keep in mind. I mean, you're, you might get $100,000, but you might turn off so many people to your site that it doesn't pay in the long run. Just a thought. Anyone? Oh, go ahead. I was going okay. to rebut that. First of all, James, I want to say I agree with you entirely. <laughs> um, as far as history being for sale, I think um, it already is. How many historic sites hold weddings and have parties? Um, big mansions that charge tens of thousands of dollars um, and put their collections in sometimes precarious situations because they're income generators. Um, I can't afford to have my child married at Rosecliff, so, um, but I certainly don't bear any grudge to someone who can sit in a chair that will enable others to appreciate the property for a longer period of time. We are talking about sustainability and we do have to keep that in mind. Um, that is part of the value of the object as well. Um, it brings sustainability in the form of engagement, but there is a, an economic component that needs to be considered too. Um, I guess our problem um, in California State Parks is that we're publicly funded by the state almost exclusively. And so people feel like it's their tax dollars that are supporting these places anyway. So that, that gives them a little bit of a different perspective as well. Just wanted to clarify that. Um, I'm going to repeat the question so it'll get picked up on the recorder. The question was about what impact um, violating the Rembrandt rule will have on accreditation. And my answer is very simple. Accreditation needs to be revised. It is far too strict and onerous. I know of one historic site that's literally across the street from me that in their reaccreditation process um, were basically told to put up barriers in their house to protect collections from the public when their mission really was to use the objects in a more engaging way. So in this case, uh, the standards enforced by accreditation limited the ability of the site to use um, its objects and its setting in, in a more creative way, um, which really just backs up the argument. The other component um, that David mentioned is funding agencies look for evidence that you are applying standards 
they need to rethink that. They need to think about sustainability. Um, and sustainability comes through active use and engagement. It doesn't come through spending lots of money on creating environments that um, stifle creativity. So there's a deep problem with um, the accreditation system and the funding system um, in regards to collections. Uh, that was a comment um, saying that if a site has duplicate items, then certainly some of them can be turned over to um, to greater use. We, is anyone, is there a slippery slope there? Is anyone worried about eating our seed corn? I mean, if, if this, we're using this stuff, at some point down the road, are we, are we running out of it? And, and if uh, the comments, I'm trying to pull the tape off the floor, but uh, <laughs> you gotta use your big boy voice and uh, throw it out. Hello. All right. <laughs> yes. Yes, please. Yeah.
sound guy just blew his ears out. Contextual literalism, 
in our interpretive efforts. A turd doesn't have to be in the toilet to know that it's, you know, for you to know that it stinks. Um, one of the powers of the human imagination is that we can fictionalize and we can uh, symbolically consider reality in many different forms. And that's one of the gifts that a museum can give without having to, you know, show someone plowing with a plow to understand how a plow works. That, that's a real tough act to follow. <laughs> but uh, I just wanted to say uh, a quick commentary uh, in defense of six-year-olds. Uh, and, and I have not, I do not work in a children's museum, nor have I ever, but in 20 years of house museum work, uh, it's not kids that are most dangerous to house museum collections. It's, it's retirement communities. It's, it's retirement communities. Uh, and uh, I think that there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, uh, that the kids are used to hearing a voice of authority, and when you tell them to stop, they'll usually still stop unless they're getting to be teenagers and mouthy or something. But uh, the, the, the retirement communities, uh, the, they're so familiar with the items, or these are things that they have some experiences with, so they just want to go grab it. And I, yeah, I used to iron with an iron like that, and they'll swing it around, or, you know, and then they, they're, they're getting close to the end of their days, and they just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I think you did well as a follow-up. I think that there is a related issue here. I know we're primarily talking about conservation issues, but I think there's an authenticity question whether it's the reproduction gallery seating or the reproduction uh, harmonica or whatever, do we have a responsibility to our visitors to say what is authentic and what is reproduction? Uh, and it, is it the authenticity uh, of the object or its context within the environment that's most important? So I, it's, it's a very important, I think, related object uh, of the, these, these reproduction objects of, to, to this issue. All right. Yep. I'd just like to make one comment about um, uh, history being for sale. Um, I come from Telluride, Colorado, and there's a power plant that's at the top of a 365-foot um, waterfall, and the museum has access to that house every year and what we have decided to do is every other year we open it up to the public uh, by donation only and then every other year we are able to use it as an opportunity to fundraise by um, allowing someone to do a wedding up there or uh, host a dinner up there that kind of thing so um, we're serving both our mission to be fiscally responsible and to educate the community and we've been really fortunate to be able to do that. It's a good compromise for us. Compromise. It's been interesting listening to this. It seems like a very enlightened audience um, that takes reasonable approaches, that says if we do kind of a, a critical assessment of an artifact, we can allow it to be touched or we need to uh, raise it to the highest levels uh, of care and so forth. My concern is that um, because the um, highest standards of care has been uh, sanctified in policies and standards 
that there are a lot of organizations that have people who aren't quite as sophisticated as in this room, and that things, um, I think Ron um, kind of put it, uh, you, know, you don't have to think if you've got a policy. And you only do things that are in the policy and you don't offend the policy, which um, to my mind, and it's, it's in part about sustainability, but it's in part about the ability of objects to really uh, impact people and change lives and so forth. And we have a lot of organizations, history organizations in our country that are missing the opportunity because they're caught up in some standard, some rule that has been promulgated and they think they're doing it the right way. So while there seems to be uh, among us uh, some understanding, you can treat artifacts differently and use some of them for the benefit of, the, uh, of an experience. Um, the field has to let the rest of the world know that's okay. We've got to challenge the standards that most people assume have been handed down from, from folks like us, who are the professionals, uh, about the right way to do it. So it seems to me that we're on the right track, but we've got to make this much more of a public um, policy and guidelines about how do you think critically about collections, not just following rules. to amplify a little bit of uh, what was said over here. Two things I heard, two facts, I think, in passing this uh, in this session. Number one, uh, the standards that we have that are reflected in accreditation standards uh, really come to us from the art museum world originally. Uh, the other thing I've, I heard was that relatively few history, history institutions can can or choose to meet that bar. I think the statistic that I've heard, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, is about 5% or less history museums uh, become accredited. Um, and if that's true, that would suggest to me, and I think, I think you're right about what goes on out in the field, uh, that we've got a, we have a real problem here. We have a real issue that we need to be reflective on, of and simply um, I would say almost mindlessly adhering to standards established by another kind of discipline doesn't really meet the best interests of sustainability of the, his the history field, I don't think. All right, I think that, yes.
guidelines that, that give guidance on multiple levels of care that they're happy with and think could be a model. The National Park Service has, and I've got copies of that up here if you'd like to see it. And again, I'll put that on my uh, bibliography. If you'll send, give me your card, I'll send it to you. Um, I also have another one that's called Guidelines for Establishing, Managing, and Using, Handling Collections, and Hands-On Exhibits in Museums, Galleries, and Children's Centers. And this is uh, more international, but it has some great information in it too, so I can, uh, I got that off the web as well. Um, I sort of anticipated this question, so I did some research on that as well. Um, and um, some of you may know of this blog um, by Dale Jones, who's actually here, I think. Is he here in the room? Um, he has a blog called Live Interpretation, and he did um, a series of posts um, to which people reposted about hands-on engagement um, in, uh, at historic sites. And the majority of the, the folks who responded about what they were doing were using highly durable objects, mostly metal, farm working implements, kitchen tools, things that were really not going to be damaged. And actually, if they were handled wrong, they'd probably damage something else in the house. Um, and most of these programs were for children. So to my knowledge, I'm sure there are sites who have thought about this and are doing creative things, but I haven't been able to find examples. But to my knowledge, there isn't really anything um, that's a sort of signpost for this um, using adult program in historic house museums. Well, I'm glad you asked about models. In, um, this is an NPS model. I was an intern, well, in a seasonal um, employee for the Ceno Canal National Historical Park. And I come at this more from a historic preservation angle. So our, our rim brands are really historic buildings. Ones are on the National Register. In my park, um, the Cedo Canal, it's located in Maryland. It's 184.5 miles long. It goes from Georgetown all the way to Cumberland. We have a large inventory of buildings. And it's what do you do with all of them? How do you find a sustainable program? And we developed a program. It's called the Cedo Canal Quarters Program, where we rehabilitated a couple of our lock houses and we let people stay overnight and um, we don't have we avoided the collections issue by um, we have a partner who's involved that administers the program and what they did is they bought um, period furniture from antique shops consignments um, or reproductions and put them in the lock houses so people use them. If they break them, we can replace them. Um, we expect wear and tear. Uh, so that's kind of how we circumvented the museum collections issue. Uh, if you have any more questions, and it's a really short um, little blip on it, I mean, I'd be happy to talk about it. So. I can use my big girl voice. <laughs> uh, we have. Actually, the mansion, uh, it's a post-bellum mansion, uh, and it over 
furnishings in it were actually purchased by the senator who owned the home for the home. Uh, we have a few pieces we've, we've added uh, to fill in space that Corey gave things away. So we let kids run amok, uh, and, well, so to speak, in the 1840s. They can look at everything in the kitchen, they can play with it, they can tighten the ropes on the rope bed with the key, they can do all of that. And then when we go up to the mansion, they get to sit in all the period rooms. Um, we'll bring them in, and it's easiest when you got 30 kids, you know, have 30 chairs in the period room, um, sit them all on the floor. Um, and then we do have pieces like they can feel plaster, and they can go fondle fireplaces and all. Um, but it's, we have one whole building that is and one that isn't. And that's how we kind of manage it. led with that if you uh, all right in the interest of uh, time and responsibility I'm going to wrap up but uh, thank you very much for your participation I want to thank uh, both the presenters um, please and uh, yeah please make sure that you fill out the questionnaire and uh, tip your wait staff <laughs>